0: Welcome, church family, to our song service this morning. Um, You are the people that I love. The first song that we are going to sing today is number 528, if you'd like to join us. It's a shelter in the time of storm. Jesus has always been the shelter in the time of storm. Next song will be number 524, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. You know, in this world, there's not a lot that we can trust in, but we can always trust in him. She that we're going to sing is five or 469 that's leaning on the everlasting arms.
1: Welcome once again. I'm glad you can join us for uh, the, a part of the worship in which we study and engage God's Word, the sermon, and I pray that this will be a blessing for you. Allow me to pray real quick before we dive into the Word of God. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity. I look forward to this every week, to share with my friends things that I believe you've shared with me from your Word. Help me Lord to express it in a way that it's not just going to be understood, but we can see how it applies to our lives. That is not just theory, Lord, but that it empowers us to live lives that honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. It, though I am getting a bit older, uh, actually tomorrow, I'm recording this on Thursday, tomorrow, Friday, I turn 47. So I'm um, getting closer to that big 5-0, right? Half a century. And um, I'm, I, I evaluate myself, my memories. And by the grace of God, I can still recall some of my childhood memories. And I don't know if you have like flashes of things that happened while you were a child. I'm about to share with you one of those flashes, uh, snippets of things that have happened to me that have always stayed in the back of my mind. I remember uh, being in a bed on my back, my grandma sitting next to me, and my grandma was holding a, a button from a blouse, a pretty sizable button, maybe that big with four holes and um, then she had a box of matches and an empty glass, the kind of you drink water with, uh, just an empty glass and she was standing next to me smiling and she proceeded to take one of the matches out of the box, put it in one of the holes of the button, uh, the wooden part, so the part with the sulfur where the light comes up is, is sticking like this and then she put the button close to the end of my sternum in my chest. So I'm looking at my grandma, and I'm looking at this button, and she's telling me, don't move. I'm like, well, I have to breathe. <laughs> How can I stand still and, and not, not breathe? You just breathe lightly. <laughs> okay, stable, stable. Okay, good. Then she took another match. <laughs> Lit it up. And uh, it's bringing it closer and closer. And, uh, man, grandma, it's going to become hard to not uh, stand still. She put the flame right next to it, and the whole thing lit up. And this whole area felt the heat uh, of the chemical combustion that just took place about an inch from my chest.
0: <sighs> um,
1: so once that big combustion kind of you know, dies down and you're left with that flame, my grandma proceeded to take the glass and gently put it over it, put gentle pressure to make sure that it sealed, was formed around the edges, and just held it there. I was staring at my grandma and the glass and I could see the flame slowly, slowly fading and then disappeared. And the instant it disappeared, a puff of smoke came out and engulfed the entire glass. And you're going to see that well inside the glass, except for the bottom part where you can see that my flesh had created a little mountain, a little mound inside this, the cup because of course it had created a suction, it created a vacuum inside my grandma said now i need you to really stand still (laughs) um i felt like i was getting sucked into this glass of of water and empty glass of water and my grandma's telling me stand still okay and she came back after a little bit and stuck her finger in the edge of the glass and i could hear the, the vacuum being broken and then she smiled she took this smoky glass off of my chest She carefully took the button and the the match that was, you know, a little bit charred, put it aside, looked at me and smiled and said, you're cured. You're cured. You know, that must have been when I was four, five years old, something like that. Um, My question, if I could go back and speak to my grandma um, as a former nurse, this would be the question that I would have for my grandma. Um, thank you, Grandma, for not burning me. <laughs> thank you for being careful with it, match. And thank you for doing this. But I have a question for you, Grandma. I am cured from what? What have I just been cured from? Because you have to understand, every culture has ideas and theories as to certain illnesses. And medicine, you know, has been able to disprove some of these beliefs. Um, This suction thing in Argentina was common for if you went outside and a gust of wind came from behind you, it was believed that the wind would penetrate through you and go inside of you. And so this suction cup would suck that air, that painful air out of you or that pain causing air out of you. And um, there were many other purposes. I can't remember exactly why they did it for me, probably for this condition called paletilla. Which I'm not going to spend spend time explaining, but whatever it may have been um, just because she performed something and then tell told me that I'm cured doesn't really mean that I'm cured i I'm not in in reality truly cured until I first knew what I was sick from because Maybe there was nothing wrong with me, right? Maybe my grandma said like this, oh, there's something wrong with you. Lay down. We need to do this uh, suction thing on you. You're cured now. You know, that's what some of these um, con men come with, you know, snake oil, cell They'll They'll convince you you're sick of something when there's nothing wrong with you. They'll give you something that will cause this reaction. And they're like, you're all better now. Whew, so glad you gave this to me. Well, you weren't sick in the first place. Before we can correctly identify the cure, we must correctly identify the sickness. As a nurse, I know that. When I would dispense medicines, I needed to give the right medicine at the right dosage at the right time to the right patient um, in the right frequency. So I would check the patient. You know, if you've been in the hospital, you get asked your name, your birthday, they have a wristband, they'll scan it now um all these uh, safeguards to make sure that the right sickness receives the right intervention the right medicine and when it comes to spiritual things at times we take much for granted i think every christian and even some non-christians know what the big issue the big illness is in the worldview of christianity is that three-letter word right sin what is that because if you do not understand the sickness then anyone can come along and tell you this is the cure take it there it is you're cured how do you know how do you know you can be cured of something without first having identified the sickness that's why the sermon is entitled diagnosing the sickness many christians take for granted a lot of things and it's to our detriment Just like if I would have said, well, those things must be legit, you know, where I need to just have a nice supply of buttons and matches, and I can, you know, if I have a headache, you know, suck it out of my head. But that's not, that's not how it works. And when it comes to sin, the, the matter is way heavier because the consequences are eternal. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and it's not referring to the death that you and I experience here. If you, if, you study the book of, if you study the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, you'll discover that there is this such thing as the second death, the final, irrevocable, irreversible, uh, ultimate destiny that a human being can experience, but God does not want us to. That's why God sent Jesus. Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Satan, just like in medicine and just like in many other things, has inspired individuals to develop false cures, false medicines, so that you think you're getting something to deal with a problem, but he can sell you anything he wants to you and convince you that you've been cured if you have never spent time to understand the sickness, to understand what you're actually being cured for. One of the first ones, this is something that you know, has dominated a lot of discussion throughout the centuries in Christianity. So we're gonna have a little bit of history Uh, Don't worry, I'm not going to make it boring uh, or long. I want to talk about Augustine. Augustine was a a, a Catholic theologian, very bright individual who, for it baffles me why, but he became enamored with Greek philosophy. I guess because there's some good things in it. Um, But as much good as you can have in Greek philosophy, I would never feel compelled to use that to interpret the Bible. For the Greeks, A lot of the core components of the gospel were foolishness. That's what Paul says, that um, for Jesus Christ, to the Jews, a stumbling block. And for Greeks, foolishness. just doesn't make sense. So I don't know why the Christian church, a couple of centuries, just two to three centuries later, would begin to uh, become enamored with something that thought of Jesus as foolishness. baffles me. But anyways, Augustine grappled with this idea of how does sin affect me? What does this sickness mean? Um, and of course, the once I know the sickness, then I can identify the cure. Well, he came up with this uh, notion of um, a total depravity of the soul. Sin has affected us in such a way that it has left us completely, totally helpless. Um, so helpless that God has to directly intervene in our lives. Um, and so... Salvation entirely depends on God, which is not a false statement, but it's not a complete statement either. If you read the Bible, there's a beautiful balance between the two, and there is no such thing as the Augustinian position on total depravity. Yes, sin has done affected us, and we'll get to that in just a little bit, but this is just a little bit of history because Augustine later on um, influences a Protestant theologian named John Calvin. You may have heard of him. That's where we get Calvinism from. Calvin piggybacked on this idea and um, developed it in such a way that he came to the conclusion that, which is logical if you are going to follow that premise, that God must have, since there are people that are lost and people that are saved, according to the Bible, then how do you arrive at that when God is the one that does all the saving? Then God must pick, he must predestine some for everlasting life and some for everlasting perdition. And regardless of how we feel about it, Calvin's ideas took off and spread. Um, I've always wondered, you know, some of the, the draw from this. And I guess if you assume in the back of your mind that you must be the saved, God must have predestined you for whatever reason, then there is comfort in that because if, if it's irre- irrevocable and irreversible, then you're safe and you don't have to stress about anything. Um, And we can spend a little bit more time developing that, but for the sake of this sermon, we'll just leave it at that. John Calvin felt that sin had done such a detrimental work upon the human nature that God had to do the whole thing in such a way that you have no choice or say in the matter. God has just picked. And hopefully he's picked you, because it's a 50-50 chance. you really don't know. You won't really know until the day of judgment. You may have a notion, but irrespective of your desires, irrespective of your wishes, if you are those that God has said, not you, it doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter if you want to enter into the new Jerusalem. It doesn't matter if you want God's grace and forgiveness. Sorry, God's decisions are irreversible, and that's what you're left with. At the same time that John Calvin was developing and expounding this idea, there was another theologian named Jacobus Arminius from which Arminianism comes from. And by the way, John Calvin, uh, you don't have to be Calvinist. Uh, His theology, you can see it present in Reformed Baptists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and others. Uh, Arminius um, disagreed with Calvin in that regard. And his position was, yes, sin has affected us. Yes, there's no possibility that I can save myself. But sin has not removed from me the capacity to choose. And we don't have time to expound on the whole position of um, Arminius. But his model of salvation, his remedy to the illness, was that God offers us freely his grace by faith. And I can choose to accept it or choose to reject it. and therefore, when I am lost, I am lost not because God has arbitrarily chosen me to be lost, but because I have hardened my heart and chosen that which makes no sense, be lost. But people actually do make that choice. Um, and if you're saved, it's because you've chosen to receive the grace of God through faith. Individuals that have accepted Arminius' position are uh, individuals like Methodists, Pentecostals, Armenian Baptists, and Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, we believe that as well. There's another one, a third one, that I'm not going to spend too much time, modified Armenianism, and this position basically kind of combines the first two. It, it, it believes that we humans have choice when we are sinful and lost. We can choose to accept or reject the grace of God, but once we receive that grace, we can never lose it, whereas in classical Arminianism, you're you a are free agent all throughout the experience. As a sinner, you are free to choose to accept or reject the grace of God, but even after you accept it, even after you've experienced salvation, the freedom to choose has not been removed from you, and you can choose to walk away from Christ. And Some people are like, well, that's crazy. Who would, who would ever do that? Well, the Bible says that a third of the angels in heaven that were perfect and holy chose that. The Bible says that Adam and Eve who were created sinless did that too. So freedom has never been removed from any of God's creatures. And I guess that's, you can hear my position already being presented. Now, before we say, wow, well, I don't like this, or I don't like that, you know, when it comes to this issue, I hope that you will stick around long enough to listen because I could have told my grandma, you know, as a nurse now, if I were to able to go back then, and my grandma's tried to do that suction thing on me, be like, get this glass off of me and buttons and matches, grandma, just give me an aspirin or give me a Tylenol. That's what will take care of this. I could do all of that and my grandma would give that to me, but she would be angry. And actually, I, I better not think about doing that to my grandma because in South America, grandmas, uh, all of them have uh, been thoroughly trained using this uh, lethal weapon and you don't want to have grandma taking that chancleta out, the slipper. Um, but if I would have rejected and said, you grandma, this is myth. This is, you know, whatever, she would have been hurt, angry maybe but not change her mind. And so my desire is that you will not simply say, well, I don't like it. My invitation is, well, can we at least explore it? Are you? Could it be that you're taking for granted, you understand what you're sick of, and then what the cure is? Because maybe it's not how we think it is. Um, I'm gonna share one verse with you. Would, you. would you allow me to share one verse with you that maybe can help The dialogue the discussion and hope you write this verse down and study it especially if you're not a seventh-day Adventist if you are if you do believe that God predestines you know humans would you please consider this verse and pray about this verse first Timothy chapter 2 verses 3 to 4 first Timothy chapter 2 verses 3 through 4 it says this for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior verse 4 who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Think about what we just read from Paul. God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved. And if that is God's desire, why would he arbitrarily choose to say, but not you, if he desires all to be saved? why not give jesus as a sacrifice just for the elect why bother with those that he will not bother saving john three sixteen says that for god so loved not the elect for god so loved the sinful corrupt world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life eternal life just some thoughts Just some thoughts for us to consider Because we need to understand the sickness if we are to understand the cure and that we've actually experienced it. Another passage, Revelation chapter 22, verse 11. This is Jesus speaking again. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. And I hope you caught the emphasis. Let. Let implies choice. Let implies I'm putting the ball in your court. If you want to continue being filthy, if you want to continue being unjust, I'm going to let you. I'm not going to impose, though I am omnipotent, I'm not going to impose my desire. I would love to save you, but I can't force you. And those that are righteous, let them continue to be righteous. Those who are holy, let them continue in their path of uh, that journey of holiness. At both ends of the spectrum, freedom is never removed, according to the Bible. Um, there's one more let's in the Book of Revelation that we'll look at towards the end of the sermon. Here's another one: Ezekiel 33:11. Maybe you've heard some of these before. Ezekiel 33:11. Say to them, "As I live," says the Lord God, "I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked." The whole emphasis of this passage are wicked individuals that we're not to conjecture as to whether they're lost or saved. God is saying they're wicked, not in. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? It's not even to the pagans. This is God's chosen people apparently there are people that even though we're israelites we're going to be lost unless they chose to turn by the way just as a little insight that word turn in the hebrew is the exact word used elsewhere in the old testament for the word repentance or repent repentance means you turn you choose to make a you three times god says turn that the wicked turn 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 from your evil ways if I were to take the Calvinistic interpretation of how God deals with this, what the cure is for sin, and what sin has done for me, then I would be forced to tell God, um, yeah, I hear you. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn and live. I have no pleasure, so turn. Well, God, I can't turn because you're not letting me. You are choosing something that even if I wanted to turn, it doesn't matter because you've already predestined me to die. Whether I remain a wicked person or try to reform on my own, it doesn't matter to you. See, it's easy to accept predestination from the premise of He's chosen me to be saved. What if He's chosen your son to be lost? What if you think your grandma is saved, but God said no? She was a nice lady, took care of you when you were sick, did a lot of wonderful things, but it's not anything that she did, it's just that I said no. Because you see, there is no merits, there is no real... Anything that a human being could do except that God said yes or no. It's a 50-50 chance that's random. And there's nothing you can do to assuade or affect God's choosing or not choosing you. It doesn't, at least in my estimation, Calvinist, the, the idea of predestination, so far in these simple passages just doesn't fit. And I'm inviting you to please study them further. Um, Revelation chapters three and verse, chapters three, chapter three, verse five. This is addressing taking some of the Calvinistic view and applying it after this, the, the experience of salvation. Revelation chapter three verse five says, "He who overcomes shall be clothed with white garments. It's very specific. This promise is for those that overcome, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, this is a very painful and very scary statement that Jesus just said. If you overcome, I will not blot out. The conclusion is, well, what if I choose to not overcome? And by the way, before you start thinking that this verse is implying try harder, in Revelation chapter 11, it tells us how we overcome. And they overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb. This is how we overcome. It's not Jesus is not asking us to do any kind of works or self-efforts into this. It's overcoming in the merits and the power of Christ. But there is an overcoming that we need to experience. And if I do not experience this overcoming, if only the overcomers do not get their names blotted out from the book of life, what happens to those that choose to not overcome in the blood of the Lamb? Their names will be blotted out. And the only way you can blot something out, the only way you can erase something if it was first written. I can't erase a blank page. It's already blank. But if whatever I write there, now I can erase it. And if God is going to erase someone's name, it must have first been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Someone may have, by faith, accepted Jesus Christ, but they become careless. They become neglectful, hard-hearted, indifferent to spiritual things. But you're still saved? I can't tell people when they transition from being saved to having lost. And I know that God is patient and long-suffering. So I would never tell someone, well, you probably walked away too far. But I can never tell someone you cannot walk away that far and still experience salvation. It is a choice. You can immediately turn back. You can immediately repent. And that's the whole messages of the book that Jesus gives to the seven churches. And in this one, Jesus is very clear. Only those that overcome, I will not blot out or erase from the book of life. I want my name to stay there. Do you? then we are invited to explore this idea of overcoming by the blood of the lamb. We can see why Jacob Arminius disagreed with John Calvin in regards to God arbitrarily predestinating some to salvation and some to perdition, fully removing freedom of choice, human freedom of choice. And I, that's why I agree with Arminius and not Calvin. And you may have thought, you know, Calvinism is just, you know, about the church building and the external ID, just like we talked last Sabbath. And maybe Presbyterianism and all these other things. You just go to a church because of the outside label, never exploring what's, what's inside, what's inside of the theology and taking those theologies and bringing it to the scriptures. Does it seem that the scripture teaches that God gives humanity no choice and just chooses some to be saved and some to be lost? Even though he desires all to be saved, he still chooses some to be lost? I don't see passages that teach that. Uh, I'm going to share with you some thoughts, Um, and I'm going to read them so I can get the wording correctly. This is from a book that I highly recommend for you. It's called Steps to Christ, Um, and it's um, page 18. It says this, man was originally endowed with noble powers and a well-balanced mind. He was perfect in his being and in harmony with God. His thoughts were pure, his aims holy. But through disobedience, and this is how sin affects us, through disobedience, his powers were perverted and selfishness took the place of love. His nature became so weakened through transgression that it was impossible for him in his own strength to resist the power of evil. He was made captive by Satan and would have remained so forever had not God specially interposed. It is impossible for us of ourselves to escape from the pit of sin in which we are sunken our hearts are evil and we cannot change them and see this is the the as you zoom in into this issue of being lost and being affected by sin sin has obviously done a job on us on our minds going from love to selfishness our hearts are evil not being able to change paul says that we, are, we have animosity against the law of God. Um, we, it's not that we can't keep it, it's like really we don't want to. So God, how can God save a human being that doesn't really care about God without violating his will? See, not, it's not that Arminius was trying to teach something wrong. He was trying to grapple with the real question. If sin has affected us in such a way that it is impossible for us to save ourselves, if we've gone from selfishness to love, how can God lead us back without twisting our arm? without forcing us. I'm going to share some verses with you that I hope will uh, help you understand. Obviously, in this short, brief amount of time, I can't expound on everything, but I'm going to give you just one verse. <laughs> one verse found in John chapter 1, verse 16. It's a verse that baffled me for years until I began to grapple with what John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius were, were grappling with. And I believe that John Calvin, if he would have discovered this verse, he would have found the answer, the cure, because he would have understood the disease. Total depravity of the soul does not mean that our thinking capacities are not there. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says that he, he is completely corrupt, completely just in, in the lost condition, but he says something powerful in Romans chapter 7, something that is significant, something that, well... I think is worth examining for I know this is Romans 7 verse 14 for we know that the law is spiritual but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin for what I am doing I do not understand for I am not practicing what I would like to do but I am doing the very thing I hate but if you do the very thing I do not want to do I agree with the law confessing that the law is good so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good I want to do, I don't do it. But I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. You know, this is, sheds some light into what sin has done for us. When God kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, they were in that condition, sold under sin, affected by it. You know, they could still look through the gates. God says that he put an angel with a fiery sword that they couldn't go into the tree of life. But you could see Adam and Eve longingly wishing but being incapable of. And I think sin... um, does has left us helpless has left us affected you know selfishness and all these things but there are times in moments in which there are things that happen to us that begin we begin to recognize is this it there's no more you begin to experience the dissatisfaction and there's something that begins to take place inside of you that you begin to look at things differently and now, like Paul, you begin to appreciate things that before you took, ah, I'm not really interested, but now you're realizing maybe that is better. At least they seem to be happy. Or, that, that, I wish I could be like that. I wish I, couldn't, I wouldn't just lose my temper and hurt everybody just like my dad did in my house. I wish I didn't do those kind of things. I wish I could be a different person, a different husband, a different wife, a different son, a different daughter. Romans chapter 7 is the essence of that experience of coming to those points in your life where you begin to recognize, I wish I could do these kind of things, but the more I try, the further away from that ideal I fall. And at the end of Romans 7, Paul says, who could save me from such a body of death? See, I believe that this idea of total depravity describes something that is not found in the scriptures. It's not that humans were left completely incapable of thinking and and using reason it's just that it was perverted but john 1 16 right i haven't read that verse to you yet this is what it says Um, and of his fullness his meaning jesus and of his fullness we have all every human being we have all received and grace for grace what i used to read that verse and be like what does it mean we have all received grace for grace mean jacobus armenius had a theological term called prevenient grace and it's, it's fancy all it means is the grace that comes before grace and he began to see in the bible that it is christ it is his spirit that works upon the human heart without violating the will but arousing and bringing awareness to something that is potentially better and providing for us the capacity to say, I wish I could have that, but I can't. And begin to appreciating something that I do not have. Now there's something that wasn't there before, but that has not forced, God has not forced you. You know, maybe if you have children, you're struggling with trying to get them to eat healthy. Um, or the things that you think are healthier that they should be eating and you know threats and coaxings and all these other things and bargaining with them to try to get them to eat but you're forcing them right it you eventually end up forcing them if you don't eat this if you don't eat that then i'm gonna leave it cold and you're gonna eat it tonight right a negative consequence um but what if you could figure out how i mean i'm gonna speak personally brussels sprouts my parents could not get me to eat that thing it was so it had a bitter aftertaste but i met somebody that made brussels sprouts and made them in such a way that i did not know they were brussels sprouts um i a lot of garlic some good spices and they told me would you i'm gonna give you some of my brussels sprouts my specialty Uh, But the smell, it's like, hmm, 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 but they didn't force me. They began to describe how they cooked it, how they they processed the whole thing. And as they're describing to me all the garlic, I love garlic, all the garlic that they put into it and all these other things. Now what I was not willing to consider before, now I am. I had animosity towards Brussels sprouts and uh, I would never have eaten them willingly, never. But the smell, the presentation, the friendship, the interaction, the words, it began to affect my capacity to choose. When Arminius says that we have all received grace, the fact that you have the fact that Adam and Eve sinned, they should have dropped dead at that moment. Have you ever wondered why they didn't? Because the moment that they sinned. At that very moment, the Bible says that God made aprons to cover their nakedness. And it wasn't just their physical nakedness. God put into effect prevenient grace. A grace that will affect us and prepare us to receive salvation grace. The fact that we are alive is because of the grace of God. The fact that you get up and breathe and and move is Prevenient grace. But it's not just the capacity to have metabolism and all these things happen inside of you that God is giving that to you. His grace is also working upon the heart. So I'm going to read some things for you. Speaking about the parable of the prodigal son, it says this Arise and go to your father, he will meet you a great way off. If you take even one step toward him in repentance, remember, turn, he will rush to enfold you in his arms of infinite love. His ear is open to the cry of the contrite soul. The very first reaching out of the heart towards God is known to him. Never a prayer is offered, however hesitant. Never a tear is shed, however secret. Never a sincere desire after God is cherished, however feeble. But the Spirit of God goes forth to meet it. Catch this, even before the prayer is uttered or the yearning of the heart made known, grace from Christ goes forth to meet the grace that is working upon the human soul. Long before you hear Jesus, long before you step into a church, long before you hear a preacher the grace of God had been working in your heart and is working right now. It's a grace that is granted to us in mercy because of the merit and sacrifice of Christ. And it's a grace that does not violate our freedom of choice, but allows us a time period in which we can learn and think and reason and have moments in which it, in, the conviction intensifies. See, just because I can Cook a wonderful meal of things that my daughters w- would not typically pick, but I and I know that she likes this, and I know she likes onions, and I know like she likes carrots, and I throw a lot of these things into it. I can entice, I can um, allure, attract um, my daughters to consider, consider tasting and eating what either father in love is preparing for them. There is in us an animosity towards God. But God's grace can affect your mind in such a way that you begin to recognize there are things that I thought would make me happy. There are things that I thought would satisfy me, but they haven't. I want you to stop right there. I want read to you one last statement because we have to close. Christ is the source of every right impulse, one that can implant in the heart enmity against sin. Every desire for truth and purity, every conviction of our own sinfulness is an evidence that his spirit is moving upon our hearts. This is not converted people. These are people that are lost. These are people that are out there. And God is not waiting for you to finally say, you know what, I I, I don't like that. Let me try this grace thing. No, no human being ever makes this transition without the Spirit of God already years into the past. From childhood, awakening in us, you know, you shouldn't have taken your brother's toy. You shouldn't have broken their doll. You shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have responded to mom that way. When you feel and experience that conviction that you were selfish, you were disrespectful, that's prevenient grace. That's the Spirit of God causing you an awareness that what you're doing is hurtful, harmful, and destructive and allowing you to see it. Whenever humans make an effort to reform from a sincere desire to do right, it is the power of Christ that is drawing them An influence of which they are unconscious works upon the soul and the conscience is made alive and the outward life is reformed. The fact that when a child gets convicted that I spoke, I spoke mean to daddy, I, I said things in, not in a nice way to daddy, and you begin to shed tears, and you go to daddy and you say, I'm so sorry, you are yielding, you are yielding to the influence of God and taking steps to accepting the grace of Christ. It's an amazing way in which God saves lost humanity without removing the freedom of our of our, of our cho- cho- choice, removing the freedom of our will. The sinner may resist this love, may refuse to be drawn to Christ, but if you and I do not resist, we will be drawn, a knowledge of the plan of salvation will lead us to the foot of the cross in repentance for our sins. Whenever you've accepted Christ into your life, maybe it was in a church, probably it was in a church, where we think, We have finally for the first time heard and responded but what the Bible teaches is that we have all received grace for grace from the moment you were born God commissioned angels and his spirit had been working upon your mind and he knows you and he's seen the decisions he knows that maybe some of us for years have hardened our hearts and said no to him but he doesn't say no to you he still puts inside you and me a dissatisfaction when we choose earthly things idols and things that are purely for pleasure not for holiness and righteousness through influences seen and unseen our savior is constantly at work to attract the minds of men from the unsatisfying pleasures of sin to the infinite blessings that may be theirs in him to all these souls who are vainly seek, seeking to drink from the broken cisterns of this world the divine message is addressed and this is the, the last and third let from the book of revelation let him that is thirsty come and whoever chooses to let him take the water of life freely revelation 22:17 the the book of revelation finishes highlighting The invitation the appeal to God but the idea of you now wanting and desiring this water of life and being drawn to it that experience was also initiated by God I guess it's a lot simpler right you heard that saying that you can take a horse to the water but you can't make him drink well what if before I take my horse to the water I have him lick a cube of salt I'm not going to force his, his choice, I'm just going to awaken a thirst for something he does not know he needs. Or horses will drink eventually, we're the stubborn ones. The Bible speaks of a prophet named Balaam, way more stubborn than a donkey. We are more stubborn than all the animals put together. 120 years Noah preaching and appealing and the only ones that went in that ark were the animals. I'm going to finish with this last statement. You who in heart, you don't know why, and you can't quite put your finger on it. You who in heart long for something better than this world can give. Recognize in this longing the voice of God speaking to your soul. Ask when you sense these, those moments when you are, you have plugged your ears and run headlong, but in the midst of the pigsty, you've awakened and said, well, how did I get here? Is this all there is? That longing is prevenient grace. That's the effect of that grace that we have all received, that we are all participants of as sinners, as lost individuals, and it is that grace that produces in us moments, speaks to us, and appeals to us in our minds, is something better? Is there something better? There is something better. You know, my my mom, when I was in public high school, struggled with me. I'm a good eater. I've always been a good eater. But my mom struggled because I wasn't eating her food. And it wasn't just that it was her food, but food that was healthy, the salads, the veggies, that kind of stuff. Plus that it was homemade. My mom was never a fan of you know, fast food and things like that. We would eat it, but not regularly. Her struggle was that I would come home from school. I went to a public high school in Harrisburg. And I would go to my friend's house. And of course, my mom knew that I would be hungry. And um, she would make a lot of food. My, for my brother and I, my dad would be coming home from work as well. So she would make food for everybody. The challenge was that i go to my friend's house to hang out a bit, you know, play games, or whatever. And inadvertently, my friend would be like, hey, you want some chips? Hey, you want some Cheetos? You want this? You want that? Snicker bars? Whatever. And you know what those things, the category, <laughs> I know what those things fall? you know, barbecue chips. They're so good, right? <laughs> make your fingers, make your fingers orange and your gut. Um, junk food. And it's junk food because though you are eating and ingesting calories, they're not really providing much nourishment. At least not nourishment that you need. Bunch of empty calories and fats, lots of sodium and sugar, but not nutrients, not vitamins, definitely no vitamins and minerals. So I would fill my stomach with that. And I would come home full of Cheetos and Doritos and all those things. And here was my mom's food. It didn't look appetizing. It didn't look appetizing. I didn't want to eat it. And I would nibble on it a little bit, but I couldn't, I was already full. But you know what would happen two hours later, especially for a 17 year old, those empty calories pff, get burnt up and I will be starving again. And I had to be honest with myself. Is it satisfying? Because my stomach would start gurgling it was 9 o'clock. The meal wasn't, had, would not hold me out through the night. Maybe the reason people are lost is because they're not honest with themselves. Because the grace of God certainly is working upon their hearts, saying, Did it satisfy you? You're hungry again. Yeah, you ate, and you ate things that your parents asked you not to eat. But you're starving again why not eat what truly satisfies it took years it took years for me to finally tell my friends nah man thanks for the chips nah man thanks for that because I got tired of being hungry I got tired of eating and feeling hungry I got tired of drinking and still feeling thirsty I wanted to experience contentment and satisfaction in a sense that's how prevenient grace works consistently and continually trying to attract your mind by trying to confront us and asking you is it working be honest with yourself are you satisfied with the pleasures that contradict your conscience when I awaken it when I speak to you when I show you and you resist was it worth it are you happy book revelation is an invitation for you god has making and will make you thirsty will you choose would you choose this water will you respond to that grace that will lead you to the saving grace of christ father i want to thank you that you will never force us, but you will definitely call. And I want to praise you, Father, that your call and invitation has never just come once to any human being. You were so patient with Peter and the rest of the apostles. You were so patient with David after doing so many great things, what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. You were patient with Moses and Elijah when he was so discouraged, Lord, he wanted to die. You were patient with Jonah. You were patient with Paul when he was Saul. And you've been patient with me. And you've been patient with someone that is listening to this. Father, acknowledging that you've been patient is not enough. I pray that if anyone is listening and has heard and understood, I pray that, Lord, as they... From their own experience recognized i know that experience when i heard you who long for something better than this world has to offer now they know lord that that was not something that came from them that was you speaking to their soul letting them know there's something better your grace has been working upon every human being and that's it lord is those moments in which we have a moment of epiphany, of enlightenment, of saying, I not, this this is it, I, it's not satisfying me, it's not working for me. Those are the moments, Lord, where you want us to turn to you, to turn, to turn and live, to turn and take of the water of life. And if there's someone watching, Father, that has not done that yet, I pray that they would choose that now. That they would respond with a sincere yes. Lord, it's been an imperfect presentation, but I pray that your spirit would make it perfect and understandable to those whom you are seeking to save and for those whom you are seeking to lead to a continual experience of overcoming, me included. Thank you so much, Father, for teaching us how you deal with sin without violating our will. Father, we receive it with joy and gladness and gratitude. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the grace that you've given us through him. In Jesus name, amen.